Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Before we get into the show, I would like to start with an appeal for donations for COVID-19 relief. To help those affected by the pandemic in India, the podcasting community has come together under the banner Pod for Change to raise funds through an exclusive NGO partnership with Give India. Your podcast, Running and Fitness with Raj, is wholeheartedly supporting this initiative. So please go to the link tinyurl forward slash pod for change india and donate. That is t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com forward slash pod for change india and donate. The link is also included in the show notes. Remember, someone really needs the help and your contribution will make a difference. To repeat, please donate at tinyurl forward slash pod for change india. Our guest today is the legendary Dina Castor. Dina is an Olympic medalist, the fastest American women's marathoner, the fastest American woman in the 8K, 10K and the 10 miles. But she's not just fast. She has had a major influence on us runners as well as I would say non-runners with, uh, with her uh, extremely influential book, Let Your Mind Run. And before getting into the podcast, I want to say a heartfelt thanks to Dina because when Dina agreed to do this interview, she said that this is her way of uh, showing support to all of us in India who are going through a particularly difficult phase. So a heartfelt thanks from all of us uh, here in India, Dina, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure and I've been looking forward to it all day. Thank you, Dina. Thank you. So let me start with uh, when you took to running. I mean, you took to running after dabbling in a few other sports at the age of 11. And uh, you immediately tasted uh, tasted success. So as I mean, how was that transition like? And, uh, you know, how did you in, how did it influence you as a as a quite still a quite a young person? Yeah, I didn't just dabble in other sports. I was horrible at them. I, I was I was the girl on my dad's soccer team who only scored one goal that season and it was in the first game and you would call it football. But one 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 goal that season and it was because we changed directions during halftime and so I actually scored a goal for the other team. I didn't realize you switched directions and and then I was horrible at softball just in the outfield making dandelion necklaces for my teammates. And then in ice skating, although I grew up in Southern California, we did have an ice skating rink and my instructor quit telling my mom I was too skinny to be graceful anyway. And so my parents were so worried about my self-esteem, rightfully so, that they decided to put me in a sport that everybody participated. There was, you know, no lag time or boredom. We were just out there running and recreating together. And I remember at the young age of 11 years old, being let loose on the Santa Monica Mountains in Southern California and truly finding myself. I was in awe at the sense of discovery being on these trails. I always saw the mountains from the freeway as we drove to the mall or to the movie theater, but I never actually knew you could go into them. And so that sense of discovery to me was so intoxicating and it really hooked me on the sport. I'm not sure if I was good at running because I loved to do it or I loved to do it because I was good at it. But I think when those two come together, you've definitely found your calling in life. 
Wonderful. So that's a, that's really a good start to what I want to start with, which is your book, uh, really, because you know, as I said, uh, it's it's a book which is uh, you know uh, which uh, obviously a lot of runners uh, thoroughly enjoy, and people like me have read it, reread passages, underlined passages. But what I also find is that uh, you know it is a book which a lot of non-runners also actually love because you shared your journey about mastering the mind through the lens of your running, both the highs and lows. So why did you choose to share your story this way? And for new readers, what can they expect from the book? Yeah, you know, I I chose to write this book because my first professional coach, Joe Vigil, really showed me through example that the value of everything that we possess, whether it's time or money or knowledge or food on the table, that the value of it really does increase the moment we get to share it with others. So that's a great privilege that we have. And so it was a way to be able to share the truths that running has taught me, not just to reach the heights of of sport, but to really live a fulfilling life. And so I wrote the book, although it's a memoir, I really didn't care if the reader learned more about me. I really wanted them to discover more about themselves and just how much power we have over our thinking and our perspective and how just minor shifts in that arena could really put us on a different trajectory toward our wildest dreams. So it was my the discipline I wrote with the book took three years to write. And it was a torturous few years at that. I was at tears part of the time and saying, how could I be writing a book on optimism when I'm losing mine? But um, but I was really diligent with the writing and wanting to share um, the great, great um, um, really lessons and truths that the sport of distance running has taught me. And really those lessons don't live in the silo of sport. We'd be cheating ourselves if the lessons we learned in our careers are in a sport were just left within that silo. It's really important to take those lessons and apply them to life. So what a great privilege in sport to test and challenge ourselves in order to overcome so that we can more easily overcome in life when life hits the fan sometimes. Wonderful, wonderful. So you you just you just spoke about uh, Coach uh, V Hill, right? And one of the things uh, you you know you talk about uh, both in the book as well as uh, in your many interviews is uh, him instilling in you something called a good attitude. So what did what did he mean by that? And can you share what 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 exactly is it? Yeah, he wanted he wanted all of his athletes to show up ready to work hard and to be supportive, not just of them, of their own mission and accomplishments, but of those around us. And it was so evident showing up to practice with a little more joy in my heart, how much more I got out of that workout. And the opposite of that would be showing up to a workout, um, feeling fatigued and focused on how tired I was or being a little irritated from a phone call I had before practice. And when I brought that irritation to practice, I didn't perform very well. But when I brought joy to the table and excitement and enthusiasm and privilege to pursue my goal on that day, how much I got out of myself. And I actually applied this to my entire day. If I could change the outcome of this one hour in my running shoes, how could I change my entire day by making sure my attitude showed up in the right capacity? So scanning my day and seeing where I had 
lulls in focus and enthusiasm and fixing it. I actually call it strategic joy and it's just creating a platform to enjoy it. I don't know anybody that loves doing Excel spreadsheets. I have to do them at the end of every month for my bookkeeper and I used to dread them, but I ask my smart speaker sitting next to me, whose name I won't say because she'll start talking back to me. I ask her to play me some (laughs) classical music. I light a candle that has this beautiful vanilla fragrance to it and I set the stage to enjoy the process that used to make me miserable and now I enjoy it and what a great privilege that we all have to make sure if there's aspects of our day that have to get done to make sure there's a little flower or weed in a vase to enhance your desk when there's some chaos around you or shifting your desk so you have a better view out that window. So creating that platform to succeed and the fact to understand that we have it within us to make life more enjoyable, no matter how it's going. I don't I don't think I've had a single day that's been smooth and predictable, right? There's always challenge and disruptions that, sure. that erupt. And so to be able to handle them with some grace and elegance by adding that joy, knowing that you have the tools to, to lay that foundation was a really empowering moment in my career. Wonderful. Now, one of the things that, uh, again, you have talked about is that you had a misunderstanding. That's the term you have used with your running till you decided to turn professional, which was uh, probably at the end of your you know, co- um, college. Uh, what, what, what was the misunderstanding and uh, what did you mean by that? So from the age of 11 years old until I graduated from college, I got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas where I got a degree in in English and journalism. And what a great privilege that sport provided in that capacity. But I... I relied on talent. I thought talent was something that I was born with, not something I had to nurture. And as soon as I um, I was giving up on myself because I felt like my talent had run its course because I was just okay. being beaten up when I went out and raced. And it was just weekend after weekend of feeling defeated until a, until a coach at college said, you know, I think you have more in you. You just need a better, a better space to do it in. And And I really didn't know what he meant by that, but he cracked open a door of possibility for me. And I made the phone call to Coach Hill, one of his friends, and realized in a very quick five minutes, a sport that I have spent a lifetime pursuing, how little I knew about it. And that was really exciting to me to just feel dumb and naive with something that I thought that... I was that I knew everything and I was just falling short. And so I opened myself up to learning more. And what a great discovery to know that we always have so much more to learn and so much more in in us. And and really, that was the beginning of my growth as an athlete, but also as a person is to just be a blank slate and get as much knowledge as possible. And with that knowledge, gain the power of my athleticism, but make it applicable to life as well. Okay. So again, another question uh, coming back to the book, and I found this uh, juxtaposition quite interesting. Uh, In literally back-to-back chapters, you talk about winning and losing, which are literally at two ends of the spectrum. Uh, And, you know, it stuck a very powerful chord with me, and I'm sure a lot of of uh, readers. So was it deliberate that you brought these uh, you know entirely different concepts uh, and again through the lens of your running and your success and lack of success uh, in one instance 
and uh, why did you do it? Uh, why did you do do it that way? And the follow up to that is again, what can readers really take uh, take from the, those lessons? Yeah, it was intentional to have back to back chapters, winning and losing, um, and really understanding that both have so much value in them to win and reach a goal isn't just patting yourself on the back and and celebrating and moving on it's really understanding the um the the inner workings of why you were successful in that moment and then how do you get better to realize at the height of my career that as i'm winning an olympic medal to understand that i was not born an olympic medalist i wasn't born sure. with any of the traits that went into it, the diligence, persistence, the um, the endurance and, and resiliency, those were all traits I had to learn, observe and learn and, and start practicing and practicing until they became part of the fabric of who I am. So what a great thing to reflect on um, in sport that it's not just that you won, it's that you created that moment through your support system and great leadership and mentoring that you grabbed on to all that good to allow that to transpire within you. But then also the losing, I, I call them like highs in the sport and learning lessons, but they're all really learning lessons. But to learn through those failures also that our disappointment is there because we care and we're invested. And how do we take that? Um, how do we take that feeling of disappointment and and make it into something that works in our favor? How do we build from that? And it's really um, there's a time to be emotional and really invested in the in the fight, but then there's a time in the end where you have to take the emotion out of it and be very strategic on how you move forward. And it's really a a dance on how to do um, how to do each one, when to be emotional and and dive wholeheartedly into something, and when to step back and be strategic and think of think of those steps that are going to continue you down that path to success and and continued growth. So it's a fun game. And that's what I think of it as I try not to get too uptight and, um, and, and serious about the process. It's a game, we're trying to master it, we're trying to, we're trying to pursue excellence, we're not trying to pursue success. And there's a big difference there. It's not getting those accolades, but really trying to continue to, to master every moment. And if we could be that master in a given moment, when that single choice is on the line, those choices build up to, to a, a pretty big reaping. So it's a, a um, it's fun. And every day I consider it a privilege to be able to act that out. Yeah. And, and, a, and a related thought is also about, you know, you know mental expectation. And you have said that, uh, you know, do not let you know i mean i'm par probably paraphrasing here but effectively don't let mental expectations lead your way right i mean you shouldn't you know you shouldn't set mental expectations uh i mean you should have expectations but it shouldn't be a kind of a ceiling or you know something which constrains you uh so can you elaborate a little bit on that Yes, I, I I have found many times in my career that when I have an expectation, I just rise up to meet it. And sometimes those are the races when I've reached my goal that I walk away saying, 
I was actually better than that. So why didn't I give myself the opportunity to be better, to wow, to wow myself? And and that was really something that I really needed to to open up and embrace, right? That yeah, this is this is your goal is to get a medal in these games, but what if you just went and and str- and and strive to be better than that? And so it was really it's it really takes a lot of practice cuz the goal has to be there, but you have to know that we always have more within us. And on a given day, when the conditions are right and the stars are aligned and the buildup was perfect, that sometimes we're better than we expect ourselves to be. And, and to give yourself the, the joy of experiencing that potential of that moment and not just falling short because you, you put a governor on that moment. Okay. And, and, a follow-up question is then about uh, you know your clear belief that uh, talent is certainly not everything. I mean, talent at best is more like a baseline and never a ceiling. I mean, that's that's what you know I have understood uh, from listening and reading. Uh, reading, uh, and uh, what led you to this uh, this belief? And especially because you know in, earlier in the conversation you touched upon the fact that till you really you know, clarified your thoughts post your college when you turned professional, you always relied on your talent. So that was everything for a you know reasonably long period of time uh, for you. But you no longer say that. You all always say that, you know, talent, yeah, t- having talent is good, but unless you do something with that talent, you know, it's or, or talent you can really nurture and grow and, uh, you know, grow do much better than what you call as, you know, within quotes, your talent limitation. Yeah, it was actually um, in in reflecting and writing Let Your Mind Run, it was a very sad moment for me to write about because I understood only in that moment that that when I was relying on my talent, I would be on every single starting line, no matter the weekend or the time of year, thinking, oh gosh, I hope my talent is good enough to win today. And if it wasn't, it was my talent's fault. I wasn't, my talent just wasn't there. And if I won, it was my talent. So I didn't reap any benefits from wins and I didn't have any consequences to losses. It was just, well, that's what, that's what I have. And it was so fun once I became a professional athlete to know that I was part of that process. That was everything. What I put into it was entirely what I was going to get out of it. And losses started to bother me in a bigger way. But so did so did those wins. Those wins affected me in a bigger way as well. And and what it came to was really putting me in the driver's seat of my life in every situation, not just in sport, but realizing that every moment I was in was mine to cultivate and create and build and grow and nurture and understand. And that was a really fun process. I was so hungry to keep living because I felt like there was so much more to discover and uncover as far as my understanding went. So it was a really um, it was a sad time to understand that, but it was a really rich time to be able to to run away and and learn so much and discover so much that the world had always been there to provide, and I just didn't understand it right. Yeah, and um, you know, running is a you know very uh, unique sport. I can't think of any other sport where you know recreational runners like myself and elites like yourself all have negative thoughts. And one of the things that you, you know, it's somewhat counterintuitively to a lot of people, including myself, you say is, 
you never say dismiss the negative thoughts you 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 talk about more addressing the negative thoughts with positive thoughts like your training or what you have experienced in a similar situation and then you know overcoming that while you are in a race or in a hard training session uh please take us through like uh, please take us through that because you know i find it really really powerful yeah you know i always used to think i was a positive person until i started paying attention to how i talked to myself i could sure. i was always the teammate encouraging others and being upbeat but wow was my self talk really condescending infuriating it was downright mean and even even sometimes if i tried to be encouraging my tone was really off and and not very nice and so it was just simple shifts of i hate this hill and realizing that i was being defeated before i even stepped foot on that hill saying you know this this hill is is challenging to me but i get stronger every time i run up it and as soon as those words in my head were run stronger each time i my posture changes and i ran stronger up that hill and so our 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 body listens to the words that we use and and the words and the thoughts that we use in our head create histochemical responses when we're negative our body sends out messages of of releasing cortisol our stress hormone but when we're optimistic our body follows through so it's really important to talk to ourselves it's why the um the psychological tactic of positive affirmations of creating a single statement in the present tense i am strong i am smart i am powerful um i am supportive whatever whatever it is you want to be in that moment if we say it our body starts getting to work to make it come to fruition so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a really good way that can benefit us so there's so many psychological tools that we can use i also learned that in positive psychology it takes three positive thoughts to counter a single negative thought and wow. knowing that that comes from our 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 long ago in our ancestry when we needed that fight or flight response for survival well decades of positive psychology has now proven that we don't really need that survival mechanism anymore because positivity gives us the the better hormones to thrive and reach our potential and so making sure that if we don't have control over a situation and we can't fix a problem make sure we're seeping ourselves in belief with three positive thoughts reinforcing being self advocating but also in negativity i have to do it in traffic i'm sure you guys know a few things about traffic when i'm in traffic i my mind blows because here on the california highways it says the speed limit is 65 miles per hour so i don't understand how we're all parked here on the freeway and it just makes me livid <laughs> and immediately i try to fix the problem well there's really no no problem to fix when you're sitting there other than fantasizing about my car sprouting wings and flying over the traffic in front of me which i'm pretty sure that technology is pretty soon in our future i instead think of three things that i'm grateful for and as soon as i start thinking of those three things my grip releases on the steering wheel and i'm in a totally different mood it's the same situation but i become a completely different driver behind the wheel so there's so many strategies and tactics and whenever i'm in a stressful situation i think all right dig into that toolbox and try to find something to to get out of this and i know even if i'm at the crux of it and i'm grinding away trying to solve a problem that if i don't 
find a tool to use in that moment, I'm going to find a new one. And that in itself is really exciting to me. So I just keep at it, being persistent with the with the challenge ahead. No, absolutely. I mean, and I think that traffic analogy is something which I guess most of us who live in cities these days around the world can uh, can relate to. Uh, I want to switch a little bit and uh, uh, talk about uh, talk about your career a little bit. And uh, what where I want to start with is uh, if I look at uh, the year two thousand. Uh, uh, America didn't even take all its spots in the marathon in the Olympics. Uh, I mean, things were going through a uh, a down phase at that point in time. And lo and behold, four years later, Meb and you won medals at Athens. And uh, uh, and then subsequently, you went on to set the you know American uh, women's record in, uh, in 2006 at London. It was really a wonderful phase. But more than your own, your own career and success at that time, it also had a significant impact on American distance running, which continues to this day. So just take us through, uh, take us through that 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 phase. I mean, what was it lay, uh, like? And in your in your in your uh, in your words, to I would love to hear what really you know made the made this you know you know big transformation. Really, I mean, it's it's you know it's pretty remarkable that in four years you know, you know a nation sees this kind of a, this kind of a success. What happened? Yeah, so Meb and I both ran, we both made our first Olympic teams in Sydney, Australia in the 10,000 meters. We were part of the U.S. terrible performance in the, in the distance races. Um, in the 2000 Olympics, in the 10,000 meters, there was actually semifinals. They haven't had semifinals at that distance since, but there were semifinals. And I was one of four athletes in the world to be eliminated into the finals. So it was humiliating. And um, and I remember Meb's coach, Bob Larson, and my coach, Joe Vigil, coming together after that saying, we've got to be better than this. We have such a great well of athletes in our country. we got to bring them together to work together. So we all moved to Mammoth Lakes, California, Meb and I, with our coaches and invited the country's best to come and train with us. And we did for four years, just work together and enhance each other. Every single athlete that was here ran personal best within those four years. But Meb and I promised each other that we were going to, we were going to go for a medal, especially when we ended up choosing the marathon and that entire summer building up to that race. It was our refrain. Everything was, was with the focus of Athens and, um, and beating the heat and the hills and the intense competition. This was all part of it. And it was such a, um, it was such a fun experience to go and do that, to be able to bring home the, the bronze medal. And then I came home from Athens immediately because we had been, um, we had been on the island of Crete for a month before um, training. So I was ready to get home by that point. And I, we don't have television here at my house. So I went over to Meb's house to watch him race the next weekend. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I left dirty champagne glasses in his sink because I was celebrating, <laughs> celebrating, celebrating his victory. He of course had to one up me and get the silver medal, but he does that all the time. Uh, but it was such a wonderful thing that we could be so committed for those four years and so focused in that summer leading up to the games and to both come back with those medals was really, really special. And it really was a testament. And we preached it from then on out on how important it is to work as a team, how when one individual works alone, 
they kind of work in a silo of their space. But when a group works together, everybody lifts each other up. I don't know if it's a competitive human nature combined with a support system. I think there might be a few things in effect there, but it's so important to work together. And so clubs and teams started popping up all over the country. And now we see these groups all around the United States that are working together and lifting each other up. And the groups themselves are supportive. We've had um, um, Oregon um, runners from Oregon, a group from Oregon, the Bowerman Track Club, come to Mammoth to train here at Altitude. We've had individuals come from other teams who want to be altitude training. So everybody's being really supportive. And I think that's what it takes to really reach uh, strong heights is to make sure you have a support system. If you don't have it in your little microcosm, make sure you find people that are supporting that journey so that you could reach your your own thriving as well. Okay. And then, uh, you know, so this happened, obviously, that's a wonderful breakthrough. And then you, you know, then in a couple of years, you went to London, and you were going to take a crack at, uh, you know, Joni's record of the American, uh, American women's marathon. Uh, did you go into the into that race uh, thinking that you are going to uh, I mean, go do it, or what I'm trying to ask is, did you go with a lot of confidence that I'm going to do it, or were you more like I'm in good shape, I have prepared well, uh, and if things go well, I'm going to I'm going to uh, you know get crack, crack it. Right. Uh, Joan Benoit Samuelson, what a gem. She is the um, the first ever gold medalist in the Women's Olympic Marathon. It seems Absolutely. to be living in an age where I witnessed that at the age of 11, witnessed her coming into the L.A. Coliseum in the very first Women's Olympic Marathon and just how far we've come and how many people paved the way to make that happen. So Joan has a very special place in my heart. And, and I was gunning for her record that whole season. I, I thought my training had gone well. I was pretty confident about it, but you never take anything for granted in a marathon. I had a plan to get on pace as quickly as possible and just ride that pace for as long as I could. Um, and, you know, there's so many variables in a marathon. Something could have gone wrong along the way, but I felt the confidence that I was ready to break that record, that I was fast enough, but I needed everything to, to unfold properly. Sure. Thankfully, thankfully, it did. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com. And also if you have any comments or suggestions, to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast-related updates on Instagram at the handle Running and Fitness with Raj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. Now let's uh, let's move on. And I think it's a very relevant question for all of us, uh, you know, recreational runners as well who have all had uh, and elites included. I mean, massive disruption in their training, in their running over the last uh, last one year. And I'm I'm trying to you know I'm trying to bring 
the lessons and the way you recovered after Beijing? I mean, I'm sure it was quite heart shattering at that time because you were clearly informed to win the gold, better your performance in Athens. And at mile three, you know, you had that horrible injury and you couldn't finish the race. Uh, but what I also gathered from the way you described the post-injury phase is that you 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 didn't let it be a pity party for a very long time. I mean, you you pretty much recovered from it. And uh, so, what 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 can we all recreational runners who all have, as I said, massive re- disruptions, uh, which is not due to injury, but you know it doesn't really matter because we are still not able to run as well as we can or race certainly. Uh, what what do, what can you share with us how to how to tackle this phase? Yeah, it's it's a hard time. I mean, even with all the optimism practice and preaching it every day, um, it was a hard year for me and my family as well. If I could take the lessons that I learned in Beijing, there was this one day I was sitting on the deck with a cast on and my crutches by my side. And I was contemplating why I was fine with that. Why am I okay? And the answer came so quickly because my entire running life, I thought I was a passionate runner. And it turns out running is where I exercise my passion much of the time, maybe where I built it within my life. But that passion was within me regardless of running or not. And so it made sure. me realize that all of the traits that were that I built within my career, the persistence and the resiliency and the passion and the joy and the love that's all there whether I'm running or not because it lives within me it doesn't live within the silo of my career and I taught myself that um, pretty early on in my professional career that these lessons need to be applicable to life in order for us to gain the the most that the sport can give us and so this past year just understanding at first, I took a couple of weeks off running. I'm like, there's no races. There's nobody to run with. I can't meet my teammates. And that's my joy is getting together for our social time in our running shoes. And then I just decided, you know, I love to explore. That's where part of my joy in running is. So let's go see if we can find some roads that, from the house, leave the house and see if there's roads I've never run on before. And then it got to running these stairs that I saw on the side of this hill. There were 75 of them. And I thought, I'm going to run this 10 times. And I got to six and and faded and realized I, I need to come back and try 10 in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but challenging yourself and trying to trying to give yourself these little nuggets to lure you out and get you physically active. And I think the great, great privilege of our sport is that we can get to a place where we feel challenged by it because we're going longer or faster than previous days, get to that space of challenge and really try to get through it mentally, put ourselves in a vulnerable place where we have to suffer a little and get through that moment. And when we can do that in our sport and get through it, we realize we have the tools to do it. So when life happens, we also have the tools to be able to, to, um, to, to get through those moments. And so it really is a great privilege that sport gives us to be able to to be able to to work and nurture those um, those traits of optimism and resiliency and moving forward and finding solutions, finding a way to keep going forward and then apply them to life. You know, that's why I keep running. I don't I don't I'm not chasing personal bests anymore. And so I had a hardcore moment where I'm like, if I'm still doing this, why am I now doing it if I'm not doing it to get faster and realizing that 
you know, I don't care if like my, my arms get flabby and my fitness atrophies a little bit and I get a little slower, but I never want my optimism to atrophy. I want it to be on demand all the time. And so I'm going to keep running and pushing my limits so that it's there when I need it most. Powerful words, <laughs> really yeah. powerful words. Thanks for that. Uh, I want to talk about just one more, uh, one more race, which is uh, when you set the Masters uh, record in 2015 at Chicago. Uh, you know, you have admitted that your training leading up to that race was far from far from perfect. <laughs> so just uh, just take us through again. I mean, these are top you know points and topics you touched upon, uh, keeping a positive attitude and things like that. But you actually put it to test and had great success in that particular race. So would love to hear, you know, hear from you directly on that. Yeah, I, I think um, when people ask me what my best race was, I think they're surprised I don't say where my personal best is or Olympic medal, that it was actually the 2015 Chicago Marathon when I was seventh place. And, um, and, uh, and so the race was so special in the fact that I had a terrible buildup. I suffered from allergies terribly from the sagebrush that was blooming all around. I got the flu. I mean, there was just so much. We had California wildfires that kept us from running outdoors most days. So just a lot stacking up against me. And as soon as I got that flu, I thought, oh, three strikes, I'm out. That cliche from baseball. I'm out. Like, I'm I tried, I tried to make it work and it's just not going to happen. And my husband was so shocked, like Miss Optimism is just bailing out two weeks before the race. And I, sh I shared all my excuses and he said, you know, despite all your excuses, you still have your longest long runs in over a decade. You wow. did your longest tempo runs of your entire career and you still were able to hit sub five minutes on mile repeat. So I know you're building up these excuses, but if you look at your training log, I think you'd see you're really ready. And it was dumbfounding to me because both stories were my truth, right? But yes. only one story was going to support my striving to break that American master's record. So I dropped the excuses right then and there. And I towed the line feeling as much confidence as I could muster. And the race went off and the race itself was terrible. I missed a water bottle. I got tripped. I got this phantom hitch in oh. my stride after the halfway point. And so the race was falling apart right in front of me. And I just decided, you know what? This is where I do my best work. I am suffering. This feels terrible, but I've come this far. I've got to find a way to get through this. So I looked at the next light pole and I ran to that. And then I looked at the next light pole and it seemed way too far away. So I looked at a person holding a sign on the street and I ran toward them. And then it was just one foot in front of the other. And I finally made it to that finish line. And I ended up breaking the record despite all the odds against me. And it was a, a, like a, a very emotional moment for me because I, it was really a reinforcement of everything I ever worked for, that every choice matters. It can lead us toward or further away from our goal. We can have excuses and good ones at that, that we can feel safe relying on to bail out of something. But if we keep pushing and keep being persistent, we can sometimes be really surprised at the outcome. So always making that those choices, the accumulation of those micro decisions we make on a daily basis 
really make our lives, make who we are. And so it was a really, really special race that it was it was the culmination of thousands of thoughts continuing to push me in the direction of my goal of breaking that record. And it was able to happen. I think I would have been proud anyway at the at the um, at the pursuit. But the fact that it worked blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it's uh, it's so interesting uh, that you mentioned that uh, the this Chicago race is what you rate as your best uh, best best race within courts. In fact, I had interviewed uh, the Indian. Uh, Olympic gold medalist from Beijing uh, in shooting Abhinav Bindra. And when I asked him what's his best moment in sport, he didn't pick any of his world championships or Olympic medal. He said he finished fourth in Rio. And that was his best uh, best moment because post Beijing, he went through a phase of depression. He lost his uh, love for the sport and then he built it back. And, you know, it was all in, stacked against him and to finish fourth, but not beyond the podium didn't matter. For him, it was the biggest personal success. So something similar to that when you say that, you know, this, this was your best race and not your fastest ones or your Olympic medal or what have you, right? So... Yeah, it's a great so, lesson for anybody to just show that it's the work you put into it that gives you the joy at the end. It's not it's not the wins, it's not the accolades, it's not even the personal best, but all that effort, that passion and heart and and pursuit that you put in towards something that really makes it special in the end. It's not actually the outcome. You know there's clichés, it's about the journey and and not the prize, but it really is true when you break it down into what we go through to to see our dreams come to fruition. Yeah, and uh, you know, to move on, I I, I want to ask you a, a few questions on the state of marathon around the around the world. The first one is that you know it's a it's a sport we all love, but one of you know a couple of downsides to this, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. One is. Uh, it seems to be a marathon seems to be pushing away the 5k and the 10k track distances. For example, IAAF has dropped uh, both the 5k and the 10k from the Diamond League. Uh, it, you are also seeing a trend of uh, younger runners now coming into marathon, uh, possibly before fully realizing their potential on the track. And one can understand the reasons. I mean, clearly there is much more glamour, sponsorship, price money, all of that. Uh, what are your thoughts on these 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 two trends? Uh, um, because if I really look at it, uh, you know, earlier we had most of the marathoners who you know who really had long careers on the track, and then you know they they graduate to the marathon distance. But it all seems to be uh, happening a little too uh, faster now. Yeah, I, that's a, a good observation, and 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 really, the marathon is there to really enhance track work because their marathons are typically spring and fall, and track season is in the summer. So yes. it would really be a great buildup for track season to gain that strength, and then just focus on speed for the track to get your five k and ten k in. They could really. Um, an athlete could really rely on them to enhance one another, right? The marathon would make you more enduring in your track events and the track events would give you better turnover for the marathon in the fall. So they could really work beautifully together, but I think you hit it on the, on the nail on the head and saying it's about money is this is where, this is where the money is. It is depleting to run a 10 K on the track, but if you can go and make six figures in a marathon, um, that seems to have a much better lure. You could just run that one Absolutely. race and 
that pay your bills for the year. Um, so I think I definitely think it's a money and sponsorship issue. It's much harder to get those big sponsorships on the track and much easier for um, for the marathons to get it because they're dealing with the with the public as well, that there's 50,000 people on the starting line who are connecting with your brand. And so they're getting the big sponsorship dollars. And, and not to forget, maybe, you know, sometimes a million people cheering you on, right? A million and more, actually, in, in these big city, big city marathons. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's, that, that, yeah. And uh, uh, one question I have to ask these days is about shoes and the carbon-plated shoes. So uh, if you are okay with it, just talk us to it. Do you think it gives an unfair advantage uh, to athletes who are not sponsored? I'm, I'm talking really the elites, I mean, because most elites are attached to a shoe brand or the other. And uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, I absolutely think it's an advantage. Um, I think everybody could uh, could get their hands on a pair. I think a lot of a lot of brands are even saying we'll give you this shoe so you can perform well in it because they're so confident in their shoes. I've run for Asics for over twenty years, and absolutely. the shoe the shoe that I just got, the MetaSpeed Sky. The first, I had to run an 8K for um, the Chicago Shamrock Shuffle. They're, it's put on by the same the same organization that does the Chicago Marathon. And I had to run this 8K race and I was not in very good shape. But I got these new pair of Metaspeed Skies and I just went out and I didn't warm up or anything. I just ran this hard 8K and my husband drove past me in the first half mile and said, how do you feel? I said, these shoes are ridiculous. And when I finished, I said to him, I felt like I was trying to tame a wild horse all eight kilometers long. Wow. I ran so much faster than my my fitness showed that I was capable of doing. It is a serious advantage, not just the cushion and the lightweight material, but that carbon plate that's meant to propel you forward. It was an insane advantage. I said, where have you been my whole life? But <laughs> it's definitely, so I think everybody can run in it. So I don't think any athlete is, is, has an advantage over another, but I feel like the sport is at, is at a whole new level. Now the sport is in a new place. Um, Every record will be broken. It reminds me in 2008 when swimming had those body suits, those yeah. neoprene body suits with the grooves in it so they can get in sync with the water, but it also kept them buoyant. Right. Um, and then they became banned after every national and world record was broken in those Olympics. Um, but we're at a point in this sport where I, I don't think we can restrict it now, but I think we're get, we've opened up a can of worms that – yeah, we, we are not allowing springs in the sport, but they're now um, playing around. Shoe companies are playing around with magnets and putting their north and north facing sides together. So when you step down, it tries to compress, but the polarity and magnetism make it spring spring apart so it acts like a spring without being called a spring and so these are the these are the things we're getting into now i said the next thing they're going to do is have little motors on the back <laughs> of and say well it's not actually jet propulsion it's just cooling your feet so i mean there's there's so many there's so many barriers we're now going to we're now that are now um 
really toppled down because of the acceptance of these carbon plates. And so the sport, we're going to see a lot of records broken and the sport is in a whole different scene because it's now not just fitness against fitness, but it's shoes against shoes. Yeah, the, the only thing is, see, I had interviewed uh, the British author and marathoner uh, who has run competitively for the UK, uh, Michael Crawley, a few weeks back. And he, you know, he went and trained in Ethiopia for a long time. And but however, his observation was that uh, that uh, a lot of the Ethiopian runners uh, who are, you know, who are trying to break through in these uh, 5K, 10K races and which is extremely significant and for their lives, they don't have access to these shoes. And if you if you want to buy it in a running store in Ethiopia, for example, it's extremely expensive. So, uh, you know, he, he felt that it is, a, it, it is a genuine disadvantage for people who are not sponsored by, by them. So, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag, actually. Uh, you know, the, the ability to access this, uh, these uh, shoes, especially in parts of the world, which, you know, which is not, uh, which are not as rich as some of the other countries. Yeah, absolutely. And you even look at um, Elliot Kipchoge breaking two hours in the marathon last year, and they really cut every corner in the sport that they possibly could. The marathon in its measurements always measures an extra 400 plus yards at the end, um, meters at the end of um marking the course to uh, make up for discrepancies in in the in the measuring process that was not added to the to the end of the 26.2 miles or 42 kilometers they had um, barriers and so that it was almost like he was running in a vacuum on the backs of the cars um, exhaust free cars um, electric cars so he wasn't breathing in exhaust a team of rotating fresh people around him which also isn't allowed in in record attempts, but also shoes that he not only had those shoes with the carbon plates, they also had springs in them and springs are not allowed. So there was just so many corners cut and it was really awesome. Not just because he's an amazing guy and has done so much for the sport, really awesome to see that the human body is capable of doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. But the sad part of it is that I actually believe someone can do it in a legitimate marathon on a certified course in an actual race. Um, and I don't think it's going to be as celebrated when that happens because he has already taken that that celebration lap, that victory lap. So um, that was that was a little bit about the shoe technology kind of kind of infringing on the rules of this sport and in a way that um, put a bad taste in my mouth. Okay, all right. Uh, I was planning to ask you about breaking too, but you have so you have said that. Uh, the uh, what are your plans? Uh, I mean, we are winding down, so I would like to ask the last couple of questions. Uh, what are your plans for twenty twenty one and uh, and beyond? And I know that you are training. You know, obviously doing much more volume than most of us recreational runners. But are you looking at some particular races? Um, what 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 are you thinking about? Yeah, I'm not running as much as recreational runners because this year I became a homeschool teacher. So that has taken up a lot of my the first half of my day. So I have not logged as many miles as I as I've wanted to. This fall is really condensed with the world marathon majors just back to back weekends. Yeah two races on a single weekend. And I did want to run the Berlin Marathon. It's the only marathon I have left to fulfill my Abbott World Marathon majors. Um, so I've run London and Tokyo and um, and 
New York and Boston and Chicago. Um, and so I, I really want, I really wanted to run Berlin this year, but it's not in the cards. I'll probably do it next year when I have to travel a little less in the fall, but um, that's really my carrot looking, looking forward is to run Berlin next year. But this is a Olympic year. So I am there for my mammoth track club teammates, supporting them on workout days to make sure that their optimism is there and getting the best, getting the best. They, they can't get a better person than you to be yeah. there. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I will link obviously all the details about your book in my show notes, but I just wanted to ask you other, any other favorite books, blogs, website, YouTube channels, which you want to share with the listeners that, that you follow or you like of a couple of recommendations? Yeah, you know, I, I have a couple a couple of books that are my go-to for optimism, and that is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitskin. He's a master okay. chess player, and he basically just uses everything in life as inspiration. So um, he had a re- reading his book really influenced me a lot. And then also Sean Acor is considered um, the professor of happiness at Harvard. And he wrote the book, The Happiness Advantage. And that shows a lot of the scientific studies behind the power of optimism and being positive. So I really liked it's really important to know the power of what you're doing and why it's important and what happens histochemically by altering your thoughts and making them more supportive. So I really appreciated the science behind that. Okay. And last question, uh, what's the best way to follow you for uh, listeners? Whatever you can share, your social media handles. Uh, oh, yeah. Obviously, your website is there, which I will link. Uh, what's the best way? Yeah, so I host an hour of optimism over Airbnb personal um, or virtual experiences. So if you'd like to take an hour of optimism with me, you can go on the Airbnb site. My Twitter handle is at Dina Castor, and my Instagram handle is at Dina8050, which is the elevation with which I live in meters. <laughs> uh, not in meters, in feet. <laughs> not <Okay>. in meters. <laughs> meters would have been above, you, you are above Mount Everest. So Right. <laughs> I do have my head in the clouds sometimes, but that's not where I live most of the time. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much, Dina. That's, this has been a wonderfully insightful uh, discussion. Thank you for taking your time. I know you have a lot of demand on your time. So we really, really appreciate it. And a heartfelt thanks for all the knowledge and the wisdom that uh, you have shared. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me and stay happy and healthy. To help those affected by the pandemic in India, the podcasting community has come together under the banner Pod for Change to raise funds through an exclusive NGO partnership with Give India. Your podcast, Running and Fitness with Raj, is wholeheartedly supporting this initiative. So please go to the link tinyurl forward slash Pod for Change India and donate. That is T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com forward slash pod for change india and donate the link is also included in the show notes remember someone really needs the help and your contribution will make a difference to repeat please donate at tiny url forward slash pod for change india thank you very much to all the listeners please check out the podcast website runfitraj.com that is r-u-n-f-i-t-r-a-j.com It has all the podcasts, it has all the show notes and there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles which are running and fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. 
and you can also email me on running and fitness with raj at gmail.com please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show i also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word please also leave a review on itunes as it will help enormously to grow the show we will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice stay safe stay healthy until the next show goodbye